All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Note to Self listeners, it's Manoush Zamarodi. We've got a little bonus for you. Yes, we just wrapped up our four-part series about women and work called Taking the Lead. The last interview I did for that series was with Andrew Moravchik. You heard a few clips of it in part four, the final chapter. But Andy is so awesome, we really wanted to give you our full conversation. Uh, Just some background, Andy is married to Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO and president of New America. She's the person who wrote that seminal piece in The Atlantic a few years back called Why Women Still Can't Have It All. Uh, It was about how she decided to leave her job aiding Hillary Clinton at the State Department. Why did she leave her dream job? Because Andy, her husband and the family's lead parent, was struggling to deal with one of their sons who was having a really tough time growing up and being a teenager. Andy, by the way, is also professor of politics and director of the European Union program at Princeton University. So he's pretty ambitious himself. And here's what being the lead parent has meant for his career, his psyche and their marriage, and also why he feels so strongly that the conversation about work-life balance is really about men and their role as caretakers. We started out like most couples start out, I think, a little bit naive. We thought we're a two-career couple, and we'll also split the parenting 50-50. And it turned out that my wife took a succession of jobs. First, it was academic administration, then more um, complicated academic administration, being a dean here at Woodrow Wilson School, and then she was director of policy planning for Hillary Clinton, and now she's head of a NGO that required that she be outside of the home for long periods of time and that constrained her schedule much more than mine was constrained. And this happened really without us having planned it uh, in advance. And more and more, the only way for us to manage a two-career marriage with kids was for me to become the lead dad. And we negotiated as we went along, but it isn't as if we planned it, you know, from the moment we said, I do. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost, I mean, did you guys sit down and use that word, lead parent? Because I feel like I don't think I was even saying that as recently as two or three years ago. No, we feel having, looking back on our experience, that we've learned some things. And one of the things we've learned is that you need to start making up some new language (laughs) to understand the position we're in and also to legitimate the roles that people are taking. You know, people use words like stay-at-home dad or full-time dad or, um, you know, uh, Mr. Mom. And we don't think those words are either – they don't make people feel good about themselves – Uh, And they aren't legitimating. And something like lead dad is a much better word and also, I think, a much better description of what 
lead dads do day to day. As someone who had a big career himself, did you find that some of your colleagues or, I don't know, maybe other parents were kind of like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you stepping back? Or were they like, oh, yeah, Anne-Marie's a powerhouse. You do what you got to do. I don't think our story is the same as it might be if I were an investment banker or something that really would have forced me to make a choice between the culture of work and the culture of home. In fact, academia is a pretty... Uh, progressive and open-minded profession. And people do understand when you have to make these choices. But that doesn't mean there isn't a trade-off, right? There's lots of things that I would have liked to do in academia, books I would have liked to read, meetings I would have liked to have attended, uh, you know, things I would have liked to undertake that I didn't undertake. And of course, you pay a professional price for that in anything, particularly anything world-class, particularly like being an academic. Um, but I think people are culturally more understanding in my field. So our story is more that it was possible for us to do this with relatively little cost to professional advancement for both of us. It was tolerable. And if we could make the rest of society or think about ways that the rest of society could move in this direction and also look for other places in our society where people have been able to do this, we could have a social conversation and move society in that direction. And that would be good for everybody. So you weren't just doing it for your boys or for your wife, you were doing it for a bigger idea? No, no, no. This is looking back on it. Mm. It was all just thinking about ourselves, to tell you the truth. (laughs) I mean, thinking about how Look, everybody who's a parent is just living hour to hour. You are thinking about how to manage your work and manage your family. Uh, And actually, what tends to go by the wayside is things like friends, things like bigger commitments to society, politics, and things like that. It's exactly those things that disappear. Now that our kids are, our second child is almost done with high school, all of a sudden you look back on it, And you start to think, gee, what did we learn? And it's that moment. Or a big moment comes like when Anne-Marie had to step back from her job in Washington. And suddenly you have the flexibility for a moment to reflect on what's happened to you and what uh, other people or we all could learn from that experience. So just like in terms of the nitty gritty, can we define what being a lead parent really entails or what it is? Yeah, so I think every couple splits the parenting tasks. It's it's rarely 100% one person and 0% the other person. But there is one parent who has to be on call, as it were, who's the person who's getting them up in the morning, who's there in the evening, who gets the call from school if there's a doctor's appointment, who worries about whether they're practicing piano, who deals with homework, all those kind of nitty-gritty things that are not just very time-consuming minute-to-minute and require a lot of uh, constant uh, being on call, Um, but they also um, uh, are uncertain so that you never know when that call about from the doctor is going to come or you never know when your kid's not doing his homework or something like that. And the lead parent is that kind of parent of last resort who has to be there. And as your kids get older, I think, interestingly, often that role expands. Mm. We think of being the lead parent as being critical when your kids are small, and of course it is. 
But what we found, interestingly, at least in our case, was it was even more difficult when our kids became teenagers because we had at least one problematic teenager, very problematic teenager, which Anne-Marie wrote about in her article. And when he had problems, um, somebody really had to be there for him. And it couldn't be a caregiver, couldn't be a relative. It had to be a parent. And that person has to be the lead parent if there's only one available. But you were there. You were available for him. Why did Anne-Marie also need to come home? Is there something about women with that? No, it it was I, f- I feel a bit guilty about this to this day to tell you the truth. It was because I simply couldn't handle it. Uh, my hat is off to single parents because single parents don't have somebody else to go to, but uh, people who are in you know two parent families, you know you often tag team, and when things really get bad, sometimes you hand off to somebody else and it got to the point with our older son, uh, you know, he was threatening to run away. He was having trouble with the police, et cetera, et cetera. And I just couldn't handle it by myself. My God, I feel you for that. I mean, on a much smaller scale, my daughter's six, but she still has these like epic meltdowns. And sometimes I don't, I try not to take it personally. It's just time to swap me out for daddy. And I, I totally get that. <laughs> and I- right. So, so if you imagine that that situation is arising, and you, it's happening for a year or a year and a half, and you think your child might be making permanent decisions that send him on the wrong track. And that's the, face, the, the situation that Anne-Marie faced, and that situation is what led her to leave Washington and leave her dream job and come back. And I really wish I could have been able to handle that so she could have done that and that you know in most cases i think probably lead parents can but this was just one of those situations where i couldn't i i'm wondering is that emasculating to be able to say i can't do this because it's funny my husband's going to kill me but i just want to quote him here sometimes when our kids don't do what he asks he says this line that just sounds so retro but i'm the father and i say to him like yeah, you are the father, but you have a completely different relationship with your kids than your father had with you. You can't expect to sort of, you know, be just the disciplinarian or get them to follow what you say. Um, Has the role of fathering or being a dad changed, do you think, in this generation? I think it has. I mean, you ask, is it emasculating? I think it's really more interesting than that. It's that it is redefining of what it means to be a guy in a relationship. Um, And there are lots of people redefining it in different ways. After all, our society now has, you know, gay couples, two men, you know, where it's all different in different ways. But for uh, for me, uh, I from the start thought I wanted to be different than my dad in some ways because he was very much that do what I say kind of dad. Um, And I found out that just didn't work. Uh, And I still have some tendencies like that, and I fight (laughs) against them. Um, And and so does my wife, to tell you the truth. Uh, We both do. So uh, I don't think it's necessarily a gender thing, but I I do think this, which is that it is 
both empowering in the end and fulfilling as a human being to be able to experience in a deep way both what a career has to teach you and what parenting has to teach you, right? It makes you fuller as a human being. And I, I think my father missed out on something by not fully experiencing what it meant to be a parent. And I don't think it's just my personal experience speaking here. Uh, there is great sociological data on this. And one of the things it shows is that when you ask men late in life, what do they most wish they'd done? They say they most wish they'd spent less time working for somebody else and more time with family and friends. And I think, although as we discussed before, not necessarily um, by virtue of deliberate choice, but, but I, I think I've avoided that. And I think in retrospect, that was a great decision. Was there any part of you, though, when Anne-Marie did come home from Washington that thought, you know what? I've had a good run here. Time to pass the baton back over to mom. And uh, I'm going to go back. It's my turn now. Oh, you bet you. I mean, uh, there. it's certainly true that I was burned out. And um, when you get in a two-career marriage with ambitious parents, because, you know, I am ambitious in my career as well, when you spend a lot of time over at one extreme, all the time on your work or all the time parenting, then you you really want to get back to some kind of equilibrium. So at times when I am, you know, somehow caught 24-7 parenting and it's really stressful and Emery comes home and, you know, she's going to be home for a week or something like that, you know, the, the, my first instinct is to say, great, kids are yours, bye. You know, it's just like with a little baby, like you hand them off and I'm gone. I'm going to go to a conference in, you know, Ouagadougou, um, and I'll see you. Um, so, yeah, that, that instinct's always there. But I think when you try to figure out how to be a good parent in a two-career relationship like this, you're not thinking about those kind of moments. You're thinking long-term how to balance out your life over a long period of time. And there are going to be periods of time when you're the lead parent, in many relationships, that might trade off. The other person might be the lead parent for, you know, years, and then it might trade back, you know. We now have much more flexible careers, much more flexible identities, uh, much more flexible lifestyles than we used to have. And this is a great opportunity for people to uh, change it up over the course of a lifetime. And that gives us more flexibility to manage this kind of work uh, parenting life balance than we ever had before. I mean, I, I do like, though, that you're not painting it as like you can be as close to your children as your mother was with you. Like you wrote that juggling caring in a career leaves you feeling that you're doing a bad job as both a parent and a professional. I mean, I can't. I know so many working moms who feel like they're just doing a bad job all the time. That so resonated with me, that sentence. But did that feeling surprise you? Do you think that feeling will surprise other men who decide to take on the caretaking role? Yes. I think it is surprising that you find people, people in our, of our generation are used to finding something or a small number of things they're really excellent at and really doing it well. And it kind of pisses them off when they're making compromises between a bunch of things that are really essential 
uh, and they don't feel like they're doing any of them well for a period of time. Uh, and that is a difficult thing to manage. And I think uh, a fair number of the people, I'm speculating here, but I get the sense that a fair number of women who opt to be full-time moms after thinking, or lead moms, after thinking that they had intended to uh, work and remain mothers uh, or, or uh, remain active parents, um, do that in part because they don't like that psychological balancing any more than guys do. It's yeah. stressful for everybody. You know, that's just the way it is. And one of the things, that, uh, uh, originally when I experienced it, I thought, only guys feel this because, you know, we're control freaks and all that kind of thing. <laughs> and then I read the literature on working women and I thought, how could I be so stupid? So you have new, new sympathy. Right. Absolutely. Can I just I th- hadn't read this stuff. This is kind of personal, but um, I find that, and I wonder if this is something that you and Anne-Marie experienced. Um, you know, you put two ambitious people who obviously came together because they loved to to talk about ideas and maybe travel the world and had all these great dreams that the other was supporting. And then you bring kids into the picture and um, there's a a weird jockeying that starts to happen between spouses. I think often it certainly does with – I feel like my husband and I, like we're competitive people and then I see us actually doing that sometimes with our kids as well. Like, well, I woke up earlier and I got the lunches ready and uh, what are, uh, you went to the gym, didn't you? Yeah, no, that's okay. I got it. It's fine. This weird constant tension that goes on and scorekeeping. Did, did you guys ever have that or was it like you guys decided, nope, Andrew's the one in charge, so n- no guilt trips here. We had periods of time when we kept score on pieces of paper of how much (laughs) each person was doing because we were having too many fights about who was doing more. That was more in the period when we really thought we were going to split it Mm 50-50. As it became less 50-50-ish, it changed uh, somewhat. But it's still true that... uh, you know, you can't quite resist the psychological temptation when Anne-Marie doesn't know, you know, that there's a piano recital coming up or something like that to say, how can you not know there's a piano recital coming up? Which is a coded way of saying, I've been working hard to get this piano recital ready. How can you not appreciate that kind of thing? You know, yeah, that that kind of stuff happens. But but it made but, me also uh, wonder, like, here, okay, here's what I want to know. This is a very weird question, but I'm wondering, do you think that fathers' standards might be different? Is there kind of a gender difference in terms of expectations? I, I just want to use a weird, like, this, this example that happened to me last week, which was I asked my husband to buy sliced bread so I could make lunches that week. He didn't bring home the sliced bread because it was expired at the store. And he's like, what's the big deal? Pack them some yogurts. And I want to be like, that's not the point. The point is that there's a system set up for the mo- the week so that I can get through it. It's so that I don't have to think about like, oh, okay, alternative. Here we go. It's about setting it up so that it kind of works. And it just makes me think like – Maybe he just doesn't care about the details, and maybe that's okay. Maybe I'm making all this stress for myself. Totally 
know about a gender difference. There is not a gender difference. Really? I think there is a difference. Yes, there is not. And I think this is an extremely dangerous thing to think. We, we think as a society, many women think that men are somehow genetically not quite capable of getting it together to organize in the house. So you, you have to kind of write out the instructions of what they need to do when they go to the supermarket or go to the swimming pool or go to the doctor's office because they're just not quite with it. Okay, I think this is because in all but 4% of American households, women are doing most of the child care and housework. Therefore, they are more experienced. In the households where men have it together, uh, they are perfectly capable of doing this, and the situation is reversed, which is true more often than not in our household. Uh, I know what's going on, and she doesn't know what's going on. Now, imagine the following. Suppose in a workplace, I said to a woman, you know, you're kind of good at this, but, you know, genetically not quite as good as a guy. So I'm going to write it out for you because, you know, it's okay. You can do the job, but you just need a little help. You know, you go, that's an incredibly sexist remark. And that's just because, you know, you do things a certain way and or you have these preconceptions, right? Well, it's exactly like that in the home. You can't tell me that guys can't organize a home or they can't cook or they can't do all these things. There are lots of things guys, we used to think guys couldn't do at all, like cook. And now you've got all kinds of guys who talk about their stoves the way we talk about Ferraris and things like that, right? So guys can do all this stuff. It's just that very few of them actually do. So they come across as if they're incapable of managing it logistically, but they certainly can. And increasingly in our society, they will. And then these kinds of beliefs on the part of women will disappear. And I think women should be aware of the hypocrisy of saying that in the workplace, men can't have this double standard that somehow genetically women aren't capable of, you know, pulling their weight, but at home they can indulge, and I hear it all the time, exactly the same genetic double standard in reverse, that men somehow just aren't capable of managing the yogurt in the refrigerator. And But what about the nurturing side? I did hear some people say, well, you know, of course, Anne-Marie had to go home to her son. A, a boy needs his mother. A child needs their mother. It's, it's, it's natural for her to need to be there. Well, I think people differ, and it is possible that, you know, on the average, um, women are more nurturing. I really don't know what the literature shows about that. But what we know from almost every major gender, racial, cultural difference is there's much more variation within the different classes, men, women, blacks, whites, you know, rich and poor people, than there are across them. So there are, I'm sure, nurturing men and less nurturing women, um, and uh, and so uh, what we need to do is encourage people to adopt um, those kind of roles, and those roles will emerge. I mean, think about gay couples, right? Gay couples are two men. Are you telling me that nobody gets nurtured in those relationships? I don't know. I think people adapt, and people are perfectly capable of adapting um, to these roles, and they will. 
Um, I asked Anne-Marie for her thoughts on – so the the two women that we've been following, these two uh, tech startup women, they're both moms in Brooklyn. Um, But what has been very interesting to watch is over the last 18 months, uh, there's been a lot of tension between them precisely because one of them has a husband who works from home and is the lead parent, and she is just raring to go. Let's go get funding. Let's push to the next level. Let's do this like those bros out in San Francisco do it. We can play that game. And the other is the lead. She has a job, a consulting job. Um, It was flexible precisely so that she could be the lead parent and her husband is the main breadwinner. And she is just going through real ambivalence and struggle and feeling so torn between wanting to be the mother that she always imagined she would be and yet really wanting to go for it, go for the brass ring. Does it just come down to, I mean, oh, don't make me say the phrase, you really, you you just can't have it all, all the time, maybe? So nobody can have it all. There are many things we'd like to do and not enough hours in a day to do them. But we're much more capable of having many more things in our lives taken as a whole than we think. Uh, So I would say to your person who's uh, conflicted about uh, grabbing the brass ring, if now is the only time when you can grab the brass ring for this startup, Grab it now. And in five or ten years, you'll have the chance to kick back and spend time with the kids. You can live your life in intervals, trading off. So I wasn't always a lead parent. And now that my oldest kid is, youngest kid is uh, leaving high school, I'm planning to get a couple of those books written that I put off. Uh, Life is long. We're living longer. We're healthier. Uh, and we live more varied lives. And there's an opportunity, if you think of your life in stages, to have much more uh, of what you want uh, than ever before. If, if there was a young couple who was coming to you like, we're millennials, we're going to have kids, we are doing it 50-50, it's possible, what sort of warning would you give them? I'd give them two warnings. Uh, the first is, don't think that you can just blunder through it without making any kind of trade-off. So don't think you can have it all without you know, worrying about any kind of trade-offs. You are going to have to work through this. Uh, and the second thing is plan. And the reason for planning is not because you're actually going to do what's in your plan, <laughs> because nobody knows what's going to happen, as our story makes clear. You're not quite clear what kind of uncertainty is going to come. The reason to plan is to get to know your partner so you know what you each expect of the other in different situations because you want to feel like both parties in a, in a relationship have been treated fairly down the line as you react to different challenges and trade off the tasks of parenting and career. And one thing I think Anne-Marie and I did well is we were constantly talking, constantly talking about the burden and whether or not we were dealing with this fairly and what would happen and what might happen in the next stage and so on. And it's important to keep that conversation going so nobody feels like, gee, 15 years have gone by and I'm getting the short end of the stick. Oh, I needed to hear that. I think a lot of people need to hear that. Um, 
this is just not something I ever heard discussed before really now. Do you think that like things are I mean, are things changing, Andrew? Are we at a moment? Um, we have our first real nominee for president. We are talking about flexible work like we've never talked about it before. Um, what do you think is happening right now? I think we're at an epical moment for social conversation here. We have a generation of people, young people, who really want to have equal partnerships with their spouse. Those can be gay people, straight people, all kinds of different people. And they aren't sure how to achieve it. And they are not achieving it by just going forward and blundering through it. So what we're seeing is that people graduate from, say, business school. They think they're going to be in equal partnership, and they're falling into the old gender roles with men doing most of the work and women doing most of the caregiving. We also see pockets in society. Interestingly, I found out in response to my article, I got lots and lots of emails from the military, Hmm. a pocket where there is a very, very vibrant debate about lead parents, lead dads, uh, sharing roles equally between two career military couples. Who would have known, right? There are all these pockets in our society of experience and progressive change on this issue. And as we share all this information with each other and think about how to change, uh, I think we're going to actually alter the way everybody thinks about this, just as we have in many other issues in society, race, gender roles, and so on. It's possible. And I'll, I'll leave you with one anecdote, which is the same week my article came out in Atlantic, I opened up another major publication, um, and there was a three-page ad showing a guy sitting at a table. Uh, it was an ad for a bank. And the caption was, am I a good father? Mm. Am I seeing enough of my family? Can I have it all? And I said to myself, if the advertisers are doing our work for us, this movement is going to (laughs) succeed. That's great. This was just absolutely wonderful, Um, Andrew. You really have closed the circle beautifully for us. I just want to ask you one more question. Um, These women... Their initial idea when they come up with this um, service for working mothers, well, first of all, they say that, you know, precisely because it is more mothers who do more household work, their service is aimed, targeted at mothers. But their idea is that once we give these women the help, the support that they need, that they used to have when they live near their families, only then will they start to be able to climb up in the ranks. Only then will we be able to get more than 5% of women into the C-suite. Do you think that's the right calculation to make? I think it's a great idea, and it deals with the logistical lowest common denominator of parenting. There are its limitation as a as a solution to the problem lies in two other things. One is that there are certain things that nobody but you as a parent can provide for your kids. You know, if your kids planning to run away from home, you know, you can't call somebody and say, could you please go talk to him? Uh, And, or if he's thinking about, you know, where to go to summer camp or lots of things, you know, I mean, it's surprising how much as kids get older, particularly this stuff is, is very particular. Um, The other thing that is difficult to marketize is that I've found one of the most difficult things about being a lead parent is to insert yourself into the social networks 
of the school and the community in which you live. Mm -hmm. Social networks that nowadays are almost entirely dominated by full-time lead mothers. And that's a challenge both for working women and for lead dads in different ways. And that's also something that it's rather difficult for somebody, particularly somebody that's called on short term, to deal with. But if you want information about which teachers are good or what summer camp to go to or how Jimmy's getting along with, with Johnny, there's a tremendous amount of information that circulates in these social networks and communities. And it takes a lot of time and effort and schmoozing to elicit that information from the social network. And it's one of the things I found most frustrating about being a parent was I, I wasn't very well suited to that. I didn't have time for it. And it was difficult to do. Uh, so, you know, I think this market idea is a good start, but there's much more to parenting than that. So interesting to hear you say that because um, so I make sure that I can most Fridays do pickup for my kids um, precisely as a strategy just to, like, make sure I know what's going on and look the teacher in the eye and see what the other parents are saying and just get a sense of what's going on. And, um, you know, and my husband does a lot, but when he does pick up, it's more like, isn't that fun that daddy can pick you up? Um, it's just the way that we talk about it or the way that we think about these roles is much more important than um, than I think I realized. Yeah, and it gets more difficult as the kids get older. So uh, it wasn't so bad when they were in preschool, first grade, second grade, because, you know, little kids are little kids. They're sort of doing the same thing. Um, it's sort of cuter when daddy comes and picks up little Jimmy, who's in first grade. And uh, a lot of moms kind of help me out. But when your kid is in, you know, 10th grade, and it's about the band parents and stuff like that, you know, these things are, they're less cute. They're, you almost have professional parents who are really helping their kids in the band program and stuff like that. And if you're not there at the incredibly frequent meetings of some of these groups, you know, sports parents and so on, um, you're out of the loop. And that is difficult. And society's actually gotten more intense about um, parental involvement in some of this particular, ex particularly extracurricular stuff. That is so true. And it makes me feel guilty. You know, it makes me think like, oh, I'm putting myself ahead of my kid and his en enrichment and growth and f making friends because I, I'm not willing to take him to baseball four times a week. Well, and add to that that um, men have much more difficulty inserting themselves culturally into those networks. It's, 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 it's one barrier that you're a working person and a second barrier that you're male. So um, actually, it's not somewhat easier for full-time lead dads, I think, because mm. they can just devote more time to it. Mm. But, uh, you know, so, so this is something that, I think we just have to hope that socials, you know, more has changed to some extent and we sort it all out, but we'll see what happens. Andrew, thank you so, so much again. Thanks a lot. That was Andy Moravchik, professor of politics and director of the European Union program at Princeton University. Thanks, Andy, for doing that again. If you haven't listened to Taking the Lead, our four-part series about two women with a big idea, a tech idea to get more support for mothers so they can 
make it happen at the office and get into the C-suite, please go back and listen to the last four episodes. It has been a very uh, meaningful ride for a lot of us. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Thanks for listening to Note to Self. Talk to you next week.